We are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight is our leading off our fall office series. Uh, there is nobody better to lead off than Jackie Robinson. And the book is entitled Beyond Home Plate, Jackie Robinson on Life After Baseball, edited by Michael G. Long, published by Syracuse University Press. So please join me as we welcome Michael G. Long to the clubhouse. Uh, I normally don't do this. Do I, by the way, do I call you Michael or Doctor or uh, Doc Mike. or Mike? Mike? Good, yeah. Okay. Uh, you're like the, you're the second Doc we've had here. The other guy used to pitch, so uh, <laughs> that's uh, right. I saw that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I normally don't do this, but I think everybody here obviously knows. I'm sure is quite familiar with Jackie Robinson, although maybe not what we're going to get to in this book. But for those listening to the podcast who may not know too much about you. Uh, I normally don't read the bio, but I'd like to just read a few things so people know who uh, who is going to be talking tonight. Uh, Michael G. Long is an associate professor of religious studies and peace and conflict studies at Elizabethtown College and is the author or editor of several books on civil rights, religion, and politics in mid-century America, including Beyond Home Plate, Jackie Robinson on Life After Baseball, Martin Luther King, Jr., Homosexuality and the Early Gay Rights Movement, I Must Resist, Bayard Rustin's Life in Letters, Marshalling Justice, The Early Civil Rights Letters of Thurgood Marshall, and First Class Citizenship, The Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson. Michael's work has been featured or reviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, USA Today, CNN, Book Forum, Ebony Jet, and many other newspapers and journals. Michael blogs for the Huffington Post and has appeared on C-SPAN and NPR. His speaking engagements have taken, taken him from the National Archives in Washington, D.C., to the Schomburg Center of the New York Public Library in Harlem, to the City Club of San Diego, to the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse Absolutely. in Greenwich Village. So right. you can add that anytime you'd like. <laughs> I have all the so, I think uh, maybe the best uh, way to start tonight is, since we just went through the types of books that you've uh, written and edited, which are uh, amazing, but if you could just tell us a little bit about uh, Beyond Home Plate, what brought you to this project, really, to, to make uh, this into a book? Uh, Beyond Home Plate grew out of an earlier book that I did called First Class Citizenship, The Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson. And I sort of stumbled into that project. I was working on a book about Billy Graham and Richard Nixon of all topics and individuals. And uh, as I was doing research, an archivist came over and asked me if I'd seen the Jackie Robinson file. And it was a file of letters between Robinson and Nixon uh, starting in the 50s and going up into the early 70s. And I really got interested in that, uh, and I approached Rachel Robinson about doing a book on of his letters because I thought they were so meaningful. And, and that night, after I had discovered this file through the archivist, Paul Wormser, uh, I went back to my hotel room in California, and I turned on the TV, and ESPN was showing another show about athletes gone bad. 
and that sort of was a negative inspiration for me to work on first-class citizenship. But as I was working on that, uh, his columns for the New York Post and the New York Amsterdam News uh, served as background for me as to help me uh, write the contents of the letters. And so that's how I got into Beyond Home Plate. And uh, another professor uh, who's a Robinson scholar, Arnold Rampers at Stanford, uh, recommended doing a book at some point on these columns. So I, I took the suggestion. Well, personally, I've been looking forward for, uh, to this for months, and the book finally arrived last week, mm. and I devoured it. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. It's really... Thanks, Ben. And it feels like, the, the, it, what it felt like to me was, it's kind of one of those things when people say, if you could have five, any five people in history together for dinner or whatever, who would you pick? And for me, it's always, one of them is definitely Jackie Robinson. Oh. And I kind of felt like, that's what it felt like to me, just reading... I know he worked with writers, and maybe you can talk about that a little bit, about the two writers that worked with him on his columns for the Post and the Amsterdam News, but it's basically Jackie Robinson who wrote these words other than your words in here. Well, Robinson used ghostwriters for his columns, as many celebrities do when they put out columns. Billy Graham, for example, right? When Billy Graham uses ghostwriters for his uh, column. And, uh, but Robinson, according to the ghostwriters, and according to Robinson himself, worked closely with those writers to make sure that uh, the columns uh, were accurate reflections of his tone and his uh, own beliefs. So I, I would like to emphasize that. Uh, and the columns are really interesting for me because they address almost every subject that Robinson was interested in. He had full liberty to write about whatever he wanted to write about. And he did indeed. He wrote about not only sports, but politics, civil rights, uh, peace issues, the war, uh, LBJ, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, uh, Cassius Clay. He, he was resistant to calling Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali. But he wrote about everything, including his family. And so one of the nice things about the columns is that we get insight into Robinson's family that we don't normally get elsewhere. Yeah, it's a very interesting mix of this, this love that he ha I mean, it's so obvious, for, which I think a lot of people know about how he, he felt about Rachel, but when you see it written that way, and also this, uh, I don't know if anger is the right word, but very strong emotions in another way about politicians, certain politicians, certain leaders, and uh, there are five, basically you broke it down into five subject areas. Mm -hmm. uh, it's on baseball and golf, family and friends, civil rights, Peace and justice, politics with principles. Right. So, since I used to work in politics and I'm a political junkie, let's start at the end. Oh, sure. Uh, it's my favorite place, too. Okay. <laughs> well, can I tell you a little bit about this? That's my favorite part of the book as well. Uh, but I floated an early manuscript with Rachel Robinson. And Rachel's uh, concerned because first class citizenship, I believe, and, and my other work on Robinson really focuses on his politics. And Robinson sometimes uh, comes across as very, uh, what do I want to say, passionate. Uh, there's a righteous indignation about some of his politics. And she was concerned that he might come across as bitter and as the stereotypical angry black man. Uh, so I want to put that on the table for you all. And, and Rachel encouraged me to include material that showed his uh, loving side, as she put it. The, the, Jackie, the Jack, she called him Jack, she calls him Jack. The Jack she knew, she says, was far from bitter, but uh, was a happy, contented man. Now, I read some of Treatheart's work tonight. He's working on a book on 1968, and he says at one point in his writings, 
uh, Robinson's letters read angry. I think that's your phrase, and I think that's true. Uh, they read angry, especially in terms of politics. I, I guess uh, angry and uh, uh, extremely passionate, and uh, just what to me, I love that chapter. Just reading one after yeah. the other after the other, because and maybe you can speak about this a little bit. A lot of people say, "Oh, Jackie Robinson, he was a Republican." It's kind of out there that oh, he was a Republican. But what I found, I found it fascinating the way he talked about really the need for a two-party system. Right. Yeah. Not meaning there shouldn't be a third party right. necessarily. Meaning there shouldn't be one party. Right. Uh, if you and it came across often in in these columns. If you could just speak about that a little. Sure. Uh, Martin Luther King's dream was the beloved community. Uh, Jackie Robinson's dream in terms of politics was what he called the two-party system. And this is a system in which African-American voters suspend their judgment until they can determine which candidate or which party will best serve uh, the civil rights agenda. And so he called for African-Americans to suspend their judgment, not to get in the back pocket of the Democrats and certainly not to get in the back part, pocket of the Republicans. So he, he encouraged some of that, uh, but to suspend their judgment. Now, Robinson's complicated politically in 1960. Uh, he's campaigning for Nixon uh, for a variety of reasons. Now, he did steer Republican in his politics. The Republican Party for Robinson was the uh, party of the Emancipation Proclamation, the party of Abraham Lincoln, the party that slanted towards freedom. Uh, it was also the party of socially conservative policies, and Robinson favored those except for uh, civil rights. And so he steered that way. Robinson was also an entrepreneur, a business entrepreneur. He favored pro-business policies in many ways as well. And for that reason, I think he really enjoyed Rockefeller's policies here in New York. But Robinson tried to suspend his judgment. 1960, you want me to talk about this? Or oh, absolutely. In 1960, he campaigns for Richard Nixon. He does so for a variety of reasons. Uh, he says, Robinson says, Nixon's the one who really helped get the 1957 Civil Rights Act up and running. He says Nixon tra was willing to travel to Africa, one of the few politicians to do that at this point in U.S. history, according to Robinson. And while he was in Africa, spoke favorably about civil rights in the United States. And that was progressive uh, in Jackie Robinson's judgment at this point. Nixon also chooses a racially progressive politician, Henry Cabot Lodge, as his running mate. A variety Nixon's also strongly anti-communist, and so is Jackie Robinson. And so Robinson steers towards Nixon. But what about Kennedy? This is really interesting to me. He doesn't like Kennedy at all. He visits with Kennedy at Chet Bowles' uh, house in Georgetown. Chet Bowles used to be the governor of Connecticut. And he says that during this visit with Kennedy, Kennedy never looked him in the eye once. And for somebody like Robinson, that means a lot. Uh, he also believed that Kennedy uh, tanked the 1957 Civil Rights Act early on by sending it back to committee in a Southern engineered attempt to kill the legislation. He's also disturbed that Kennedy has met with Southern politicians, especially the governor of Alabama, John Patterson, and the head of the WCC, the White Citizens Council in Alabama. And Kennedy did indeed do that. And after that meeting, Ken they come out and say that Kennedy's going to be a friend of the South. And so remember, the Democratic Party at this point has quite a few Dixiecrats in it. And so Robinson is hands-off. He's concerned about Kennedy and the Dixiecrats. And so he goes towards Nixon. 
He campaigns with Nixon, but he gets upset. He gets upset because Nixon's team avoids going to Harlem. Now, Nixon, I'm sorry, Robinson and Rockefeller campaigned on the corners of Harlem in 1960 for Nixon. But Nixon himself and his team avoid going to Harlem. Also, in uh, October 1964, Martin Luther King lands in jail. Reedsville State Prison in Georgia, four months of hard labor is his sentence. And Harry Belafonte, major civil rights activist, gets to Jackie Robinson and says, tell Nixon to intervene in this case on behalf of King. Nixon refuses to do so, saying it's grandstanding. At the same time, Kennedy calls Coretta, expresses his concern, and Robert F. Kennedy calls the local judge in DeKalb County, Georgia, and helps engineer King's release. At that point, Daddy King Sr. stands up outside his house and says, you know who I'm voting for. And that was a significant case. Martin Luther King didn't do that, but Daddy King did that. And when that happened, a lot of those independent African-American voters went that way. And Robinson was really ineffective in that 1960 race. While we're on that timing, if you could just speak a little bit about, so uh, Jackie writes for the New York Post for X amount of time, a relatively short time, Mm -hmm. and then he writes for the New York Amsterdam News for a much longer time. If you could just talk about, because it seems to tie in with uh, what we're talking about a little bit, that timing of why he, why his column ended with the New York Post. Yeah, his column ends in the New York Post. He leaves before he goes to campaign for Nixon. Now, what's really interesting about the Post, especially for those of you who read it now, is that the Post in, the ni- in 1960 was what? It was a Democratic paper. Wexler. James Wexler, is that how you say his last name? Yeah. Wexler was the editor, Dorothy Ship, the publisher. And that paper steered hard left. <laughs> Robinson sponsors and supports Nixon in his New York Post columns. That doesn't sit well with Wexler. doesn't sit well with Schiff as well. In fact, after he comes back after the campaign, or just, no, no, no. The night of the election, or the night before the election, Wexler sits down and writes a letter to Robinson, basically firing him, saying, we're not going to have you back. We're not going to have you back for several reasons. One of them is that we think that you were biased in your reporting, that you are biased towards Nixon. Wexler doesn't like that. He's a big Kennedy fan. And the other reason is that he said, we typically don't hire people with ghostwriters at this point, at this uh, newspaper. And Robinson goes ballistic. He doesn't like any of those responses. He ends up at the New York Amsterdam News. One of my favorite columns was his column talking about what happened to him at the New York Times yeah, when he goes to work at the... Na- his column, was it his first column? His again? first column. He gets a dig in at the New York Post. Which he? was fantastic. Yeah, I yeah. agree. That's Robinson, though. <laughs> He's always paying back. Yeah. Uh, well, I for one loved it. Uh, all right, so, and from, from our crowd, if, uh, when we get to the questions, I'm sure some of them may want to touch on the politics. Try maybe now flip to the other end about some of his, uh, uh, the heartwarming columns mm-hmm. about Rachel, it seems about Rachel and about Jackie Robinson's mother. Mm. Uh, both those two women uh, are a centerpiece of, of, for a lot of reasons, but also in these columns. 
Robinson in 1968 said, I think I've become much more aggressive uh, after baseball. And that's pretty dramatic for those of us who know that he stole, 19, he stole home plate 19 times, including in that 1955 World Series against the New York Yankees when he was indeed safe, uh, sliding into home plate, and Yogi Berra went ballistic as the catcher. By the way, Rachel says that when she sees Yogi now, uh, Yogi never says hi to her. He just says, out. <laughs> and Rachel says, hey. <laughs> but, but he credits his mother uh, for the aggression that really fueled him in baseball and in the post-baseball years. Uh, in fact, he writes about this at one point. He says, you know, where does, where does my aggression come from? Well, it comes from, in part, uh, my family life. When I was a kid, uh, my mother moved from rural Georgia, California. And he says that when I was a kid, uh, we, didn't have, we didn't know whether we were going to have food on the table. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, before I went to kindergarten, I went to school with my kindergarten with my sister and sat in the sandbox outside while she was in the school inside. And the school protested uh, to Robinson's mother, and she said, what do you want me to do, go on welfare? And Robinson said, I went back into the sandbox. And that's really where a lot of my character was formed, in the sandbox. It was formed in also uh, getting money from some of his friends. Uh, when he was playing sports as a youngster, they would pay him to be on their team. And so he, he says at one point, I, I became professional long before I became professional. <laughs> but he thinks these early experiences uh, really formed his character. And what about with Rachel? Well, I can tell you, from my conversations with Rachel, that I know that she's a tough nut. And she's been through a lot. And it's understandable to me, uh, in many ways, that she's as determined and as tough as she is. Uh, a wonderful woman. I know that Sridhar Papu has uh, spoken with her as well. A wonderful woman, incredibly talented. And she's running the Jackie Robinson Foundation today. Uh, or she's not running it today, I'm sorry. But she's still a driving force in the foundation, getting lots of scholarships for minorities. But uh, in those early years, she stood by Robinson, according to Jackie, and he could not have done, he says, I, I could not have done what I did without her. Now, what did she do? I don't know exactly other than to say that she was simply there by his side and in the stands, encouraging him and cheering for him quietly and also ripping him when he needed to be ribbed. Uh, so I think that he found her a supportive, I know that he found her a supportive presence uh, throughout his life. There's this wonderful picture of Robinson and, uh, and Rachel and Arnold Rampersad's autobiography of Jackie. And it's a picture taken of them just after Jackie Jr.'s death. And they were hosting an afternoon of jazz at their place in Stanford, Connecticut to raise money for the civil rights movement. And it happens just after Jackie Jr.'s death, and the picture is one of uh, Jackie and Rachel uh, almost clutching each other. And the first time I saw that, I thought to myself, wow, that's their whole relationship, I think, in a nutshell. Uh, well, that's a horrible cliche. That's their relationship uh, right there in that image, uh, clutching each other through difficult times, uh, beginning not in 1947, but far earlier than that, and then leading up to his death in 1972. It, I think it's a matter of clutching in many ways. Check out that picture. It's beautiful, beautiful picture.
and uh, it's not quite a clutch, but it's an arm around, and uh, and it's something that's been uh, spoken about. It was in the movie. There's been controversy about it. Uh, the esteemed Lee Lowenfish, who's in the clubhouse tonight, as usual, would probably uh, certainly know this. But I believe there's there's been controversy whether Pee Wee Reese really put his arm around Jackie Robinson. Right. Where did it happen? Yeah. And then I wasn't expecting, as I'm flipping through the yeah. columns, Jackie Robinson talks about it, and that's I assume is the fact. Jackie Robinson telling it. Well, there's great controversy about this event because there's no documentation of it at the time. There's certainly no pictures of it at the time, but Robinson clearly remembers it in his mind as having happened at Boston. And so he's getting red for those. Yeah, the red right. What's that? And so they got the red right at least. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So for those of you who don't know, he's getting ribbed uh, for lots of things, and and Pee Wee Reese walks over to him and puts his arm around him, and Robinson says that Rob, that Pee Wee Reese also got sharply criticized for that that day. Uh, somebody in the stands yells, uh, "Your grandfather's going to take your mint julep away from you." According to Robinson, so Robinson has a clear memory of this event, but there's no documentation of it. There's certainly no photograph of it, but you can find it in a statue outside the Brooklyn Cyclones <laughs> Stadium, which was uh, defaced. Uh, oh yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, defaced by a neo-Nazi, huh? Yeah, an interesting mix of yeah. prejudice. No one has been found. Right? Yeah. No. I don't think so. No. Ten thousand dollar reward, but nobody's been found. Is that right? It is cleaned up, though. It is cleaned they up. Find, yeah. There was a swastika put on it, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know what's interesting is that Robinson faced a neo-Nazi, and this is recounted in the columns too, Ben. Right. Uh, early on, when he was at an NAACP event with uh, a bunch of young NAACP activists, and a neo-Nazi uh, runs into the event and starts to uh, yell anti-Semitic things and so forth. And Robinson says, I felt like standing up and slugging him. And he said, but some wiser youths got there first. And those were the nonviolent NAACP activists who apparently surrounded the guy and escorted him out. Robinson was not nonviolent. He was. In fact, he says several times, 47 was a very difficult year for him because he turned the other cheek as Branch Fricky. Uh, admonished him to do using the words of Jesus, right? Or at least a book about Jesus, right? Giovanni, Giovanni, yeah. That he gave to all his family for Christmas. Right, right yeah, nice. That's what his building was lavish with. We had a great expert on Branch Ricky tonight. But Robinson was not nonviolent. Uh, he never was, and he supported the Vietnam War at points, too. But he was a big supporter of King's uh, insistence that the civil rights movement be nonviolent. So King was part of that old guard. He was part of the old guard with Martin Luther King at the NAACP, Roy Wilkins at the SCLC, uh, Whitney Young at the Urban League, and the old guard is calling for racial integration and for uh, advancing civil rights nonviolently. And then that younger guard that comes up along the younger bucks, right? Uh, the ones who say that we should use any means necessary, right? And the ones who say that maybe racial separatism is a good thing at times. And so these are the folks in the Black Power Movement, Stokely Carmichael, and then later H. Rack Brown and so forth. Robinson stands away from them. Though later, it seems to me, later in his life, he makes some overtures in that direction. 
Yeah, there were there were quite a few mentions of uh, Malcolm X right. uh, in his writings. Yeah, Malcolm X and Robinson had a complicated relationship in many ways. Uh, do you want me to talk about yeah, this? Yeah, definitely. You do? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I can tell you a couple things. Robinson, because he was part of that old guard, was opposed to Malcolm X because of Malcolm X's embrace of any means necessary and because of his uh, encouragement for racial separatism. In fact, Jackie says at one point, I reject your dream of a separate state. And uh, he also says, we have millions of dollars invested in this country. We have too much invested in this country for us to leave it. And he, like Ralph Bunch at the time, talked about cashing in on their investment. And so Robinson had this sense that African Americans shouldn't leave the country, but they should do all they can to cash in on the movement. And he stood against Malcolm X in that respect. Uh, he didn't give a eulogy for Malcolm X when he died, which gave me pause. I was looking for a eulogy and couldn't find it because so many others uh, did, but Robinson chose not to. Though he did quote Malcolm X later on in his life. Uh, at one time, he and Malcolm X were debating, and Malcolm said something like, uh, you know, Jackie, your kids and my kids will never settle for what we're willing to settle for now. And Robinson liked to quote Malcolm X in his later speeches. Uh, but he certainly was never a big fan of Malcolm X during his lifetime. I wish he had given a eulogy. I really do, of some sort, but he never really did. And Malcolm X, by the way, uh, sharply criticized Robinson for being beholden to his so-called, what Malcolm called, his white benefactors. He says, look, you're beholden to Branch Rickey. You're beholden to Nelson Rockefeller. You're beholden to uh, William Black, chock full of nuts, where Robinson worked after leaving baseball. These are rich white benefactors, and you count out of them. Uh, you give more of your attention to them than you do to the black masses. And so Malcolm X says, you're out of touch with the black masses, and you're out of touch because you give so much of your devotion to these white benefactors. Robinson basically says in response, these people have done more for the civil rights movement than you ever will do. And then he recounts, uh, the Jewish presence in the NAACP, for example. And he recounts Bill Black's work, and he recounts Rockefeller's work for civil rights as well. And he believes that Malcolm X actually fuels a backlash in the white community. Uh, There's also an extremely touching column that he wrote about the three, the three men, uh, three white men who passed yeah. away in Mississippi, who were killed in Mississippi. Uh, Schwarmer, Cheney, and couldn't couldn't yeah. Uh, it was a really touching column uh, that he wrote about that. You know, Robinson had a soft place in his heart for uh, children and youth who were involved, and young people who were involved in the movement, and always sought, in many ways, to give his support to young folks in the movement. And when that event happened, he rallies around and tries to help raise monies for a community center in their honor. Uh, and so, yeah, he's always attracted to younger folks who are in the movement. Uh, he was a big fan of Wrangell when he was a young man and, and, and uh, campaigned for him, actually quite a bit. 
became less a fan of Adam Clayton Powell Jr. as Powell's life went on. I will maybe now we can uh, see if there's any questions from the crowd about any anything. One thing I've never understood is why he chose to become a Republican. He could have been an independent. He was always an independent man himself. Yeah, well, he was a registered independent. He was. He was a registered independent. Uh, Though, I have to tell you, I don't know whether he became a registered Republican during the Rockefeller years. Do you know if he became a registered Republican? Uh, He must have because he was asked before convention, right? Yeah, but he was there by special appointment. From Rockefeller, it gets tricky because uh, in '60, before he campaigns for Nixon, he campaigns for Humphrey right. in Wisconsin. Right, was actually partially why he attended what happens because Bobby Kennedy goes after him for that. He does, yeah. And then, but definitely by '66, when he's working for Rockefeller, he has to. But Floyd Patterson is also working for Rockefeller as well, so I don't know if he was registered for Republican. Now, Robinson calls himself a Rockefeller Republican. Whether he's officially registered as a Republican, I don't know. But what's a Rockefeller Republican? Well, it's a Republican who steers liberal on civil rights issues in Robinson's mind, and somebody who's pro-business and somebody who's tough on foreign policy and, and anti-communist. And Robinson loved all that. He liked George Romney in Michigan. Uh, he liked Nelson Rockefeller in New York. He liked Bill Scranton in Pennsylvania as well. So he liked the liberal Republicans. And after the 1960 race, he sits down and writes a letter to Ab Herman, who's one of the leaders of the Republican National Committee. And he basically volunteers to help the Republican Party uh, become more open to African-American voters. And Herman writes back and says, uh, you could be a messiah for the Republican Party. Well, that doesn't happen. In fact, the following year in 61, Barry Goldwater travels south, and he says, we're not going to get the African-American vote. He doesn't say African-American. He says, we're not going to get the Negro vote as a block in 64 and 68. And so, this is what Goldwater says, we ought to go hunting where the ducks are. And when Robinson hears about that, he goes ballistic, reaches out to Nixon, says, change this. Nixon makes a statement that Jet Magazine saying that Republicans are stupid for ignoring the black vote. He also says that the Republican Party is stupid for acting like an exclusive social club that ignores blacks. And he makes another comment that I can't quite remember right now, but he makes these really racially progressive comments. And Robinson writes him a glowing letter in response. (laughs) Did you ever see the, the eyes and the prize? I think the second series had video of Malcolm and Jackie Robinson debating black capitalism on 125th Street. I haven't seen that video. No. I'm not What's sure. I volume? think it's the second series. You know, they yeah. did about, you know, 24 of them, I think. Yeah. And it was eye-popping, you know, because there they were. Right. They must have been around 1962, 63, possibly earlier. They were just, you know, going back and, 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 and you know, given... I mean, Jackie's, you know, you know, combativeness, you know, it's, yeah. it's not surprising, I guess, that he didn't go to the mountains. Because, you know, I mean, I, 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 I think he, 
when he was crossed, he, uh, well, when somebody, you know, called him, you know, he was called Uncle Tom, so long. Right. You know. Yeah, he was called Uncle Tom a lot. So, but if you that footage, that footage blows me away, but I'm not sure exactly where it is, but I think it's in the second uh, I'd love to watch it. I have to check that out. Robinson was a capitalist yeah. uh, in the deepest recesses of his heart. He really was. He was. He was a, a business entrepreneur. He was constantly starting businesses, and uh, his, I think his first one was a clothing business in Harlem. Uh, he entered into construction companies. Uh, he tried to, and when he founded Harlem National Bank. Uh, his whole purpose as not his whole purpose because part of his purpose was to make money but part of his purpose was to make sure that African Americans could get loans at a decent rate he really believed in, and this is where I think he steered away from King as well King was a democratic socialist in many ways uh, Robinson was not he really believed that one could advance in, uh, on the civil rights agenda by making sure that economic justice through the system of capitalism uh, really takes root in the African American community so uh, I'm embarrassed to admit that I, I did not know too much about kind of Jackie's post-baseball career. Uh, I knew he did some writing, but I didn't know how kind of deep he got into it, both from a political standpoint, which makes sense. But you're talking about, you talk a lot about his wife and his mom. And I would assume that after everything he went through, he would want to guard himself from putting his personal life out there. Is this something that kind of developed over time as far as did, did he become more comfortable as a writer? Or I, I, it doesn't make sense to me why this guy that, that dealt with so much adversity for the first X amount of years of his career would be so comfortable saying, here, I'm going to talk about my wife and my mother in a public forum, when I'm going to have these guys be up for being, I don't know, torn about our public Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, he didn't talk about them a whole lot. Uh, he did mention them here and there in his columns. And when he accepted an award, he always credited them. But he didn't talk about, and he also wrote a column about his family problems, but, but th- those are very shallow columns. He doesn't dig deeply. He doesn't talk about, well, yes, he does. At some points, he talks about Jackie Jr. struggling with drugs. And in fact, he becomes a, a vocal opponent of uh, local community uh, anti-drug campaigns. And he joins his son in those campaigns. So he does that as well, and he actually goes to uh, Congress as well to call for anti-drug campaigns too. So maybe he does that more than I think. So I'm glad you raised the question. I have to go back and check into it more deeply. Uh, But I don't think there's a whole lot of material on what he says about his son David, for example, or even Sharon. I don't think there's a whole lot of material out there on that either. The impression I always had is that his writing on his family addressed things like his son's drug addiction, right. things that he perceived to be endemic in the African-American community. Right. And so he was really writing about the issue, using his family as an example. I think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's good. Yeah. And, and I think you're talking about his wife and his mother, um, I, I think he saw the strength of, of women in that community and wanted to promote and recognize it. Hey, that's a great point, too. He calls Negro women the backbone of the movement. And that's pretty significant because for those of you who know 
a little bit about the March on Washington, know that women were sort of shunted aside uh, on that day, and they had to fight for a small place on the podium. But Robinson, that's right, he, he constantly points to women as the backbone of the movement, and that's pretty progressive at the time. Though he's very chivalrous at the same time and talks <laughs> about the need to open up doors for women and so forth and so on. <laughs> in fact, he says he was here in New York and somebody didn't open a door for a woman and he got really angry about that and had to write a column about <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of speculation as to why Jackie Robinson was traded from the Dodgers yeah. to the Giants. Yeah. Um, there's a lot out there. Yeah. Um, and with your re- research, yeah. with your interviews, what what do you believe is correct? Well, I think one of the more interesting questions is why Robinson felt the need to leave baseball. So, and that's different from what O'Malley and Bavese were thinking at the time, for example. At one point, at several points, Robinson says he left baseball because an executive in baseball questioned his integrity. So then the question becomes, what the hell does that mean? And I have various theories about that. I suppose I don't feel entirely comfortable giving them on a podcast. (laughs) But uh, I can say that he also felt as if baseball continued its racist ways. Uh, he was very disturbed at his relationship with O'Malley. O'Malley was always disappointing to him because O'Malley never lived up to Branch Rickey's uh, example. Uh, I think he also felt as if he was getting a little creaky at times. But he and O'Malley had a contentious relationship, and I think part of it is because O'Malley was never Branch Rickey. I think that's... And he had troubles with Austin. They had problems with Oh yeah, and sure. You want to talk about that? Well, well not on your podcast. So, but yeah. Okay. You know, Jackie you know, Austin was just a tough guy. Yeah. Also. Yeah. But Ricky had something in St. Louis twenty years earlier. Yeah. And uh, uh, and and, you know, and he, Jackie, you know, had so many injuries. You know, I mean, he. Yeah. I mean, even. Uh, he might have retired if he hadn't been traded. You know, I mean, he was didn't play that much that, that last year. Right. Yeah, yeah that's right. I'm, I don't want to jump in too much on the podcast either, but I talk. I asked actually asked Carl Erskine this morning on a podcast about the, the trade, and he said, it, it, you know, it seems as if it's, it had a lot to do with the contentious relationship with Walter O'Malley um, because he did have it that he could only be traded to another New York team but then decided to retire. I can tell you a little bit more. I can tell you that the executive might have been O'Malley, and the O'Malley and O'Malley might have confronted Robinson about a sensitive issue. Well, first, you know, okay. told me the story. I mean, uh, I mean, get an idea about how Jackie, you know, carried yeah. grudges, you know, which right. makes him human. I mean, you know, he's a hero, but he's, you know, he's human. He, er, Erskine pitches a no hitter at 56. This is Jackie's last year. How did she not do that by now? And uh, uh, Tom Sheehan, uh, who was closely connected to Stone, is a no hitter against the Giants. And 
Sheehan's told the press that we're not worried about the Dodgers. Erskine's getting old. Mm-hmm. Robinson's getting old. Campanella's getting old. Mm-hmm. So Erskine pitches a no-hitter against the Giants. Jackie saves it with a great play at third base. Campanello guides him through the no-hitter. As did this charging Erskine, you know, after the you know, almost carrying off the field, Jackie sees Sheehan in the stands. Dugout, takes the clipping out of the <laughs> <laughs> and, and says, "How do you think of us now?" <laughs> but I, I want to get back to your comment. Uh, gossip is one thing; hard facts are another. And the only hard fact that I can really tell you about this particular incident is that Robinson said an executive in baseball questioned his integrity, and that's why he left baseball. He puts that in a column. So then the question becomes for those of you who want to dig around, now what's the incident? What's driving that? What happened? Well, isn't it, isn't it the Look magazine? He sold his retirement. No, uh, it's not a Look magazine. It's something else. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued after the podcast. It sounds like it could be unrelated to baseball. I don't know. But we do know what he... What his feelings were about Walter O'Malley, he makes clear in this book. He does, uh, he, yeah. yeah. So. You know, he he came around near the end. He reached out to O'Malley. Rachel Robinson encouraged him to reach out to O'Malley uh, shortly around, the t- I think around the time of, he was inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame. And then later when he went to uh, L.A. for Jackie Robinson Day. And O'Malley never called him back on this particular occasion when Robinson sent a letter asking for a meeting. O'Malley never uh, contacted him back about that. He also praises O'Malley for rallying around Campanella after the accident and taking care of Campanella. So he praises O'Malley, but he had little light for O'Malley. There's no doubt about that. And massive love for Branch Rickey. Massive love for Branch Rickey. Yeah, Branch Rickey, in Jackie Robinson's mind, treated him as if he was his own son. And Robinson says, you know, I didn't have a father growing up. And Ricky was like a father to me. And, and Branch's son yeah. had the same birthday as Jackie. Father. Right, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, did Robinson take any public stands on baseball labor issues like the reserve boys? He did. He backed Kurt Flood. Is it good? Yes. I don't know that issue that well. Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, but yes, he backed Kurt Flood. How did he do that? Did he testify he publicly? Did testify. Yeah. He did testify publicly. Yeah. He wrote a column about it too, but I can't call it to mind that well. <coughs> but going back to the uh, Henry Reese incident. Yeah. Guess, excuse me. Sure. But, yeah. uh, the the, uh, the infamous or famous whatever, but. Um, there's a rumor saying that it actually happened in 1948, or it was more likely to have happened in 1948. Does he talk about that, whether or not it happened in 47 or 48? He's, Even if it was in Boston. As I remember that particular column, then maybe you call it to mind better than I can, he says in the first year of baseball, this happened in Boston. I could, I could be wrong. You may be right. 
from what I remember, he clearly says Boston, but I don't think he says the year that it happened. Does he say the earliest days of baseball? His He's like, it's a little vague the way uh, when he okay. talks about the time. <laughs> that uh, could be. I mean, the likelihood is it's 48 because he's playing second. Right. Base and, and it's not right. like any of that stuff is going west. first. And, you know, I mean, I like the movie, but it's <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. the way they do it in the movie. He definitely doesn't say 1947 yeah. in the column. That, um, that I mean. Yeah, the, the movie really took some liberties too. <laughs> uh, and, and, and I have to bring this up this evening. Um, the pitcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Chris Houston, um, he was a. Um, the movie depicted him as a hard throwing right hander. Right? Yeah, he was left handed. <laughs> he was a soft throwing left hander who didn't hit Jackie in the head, but Jackie was kind of crowding the plate and he got him, I believe, on the arm. And, and and the picture wasn't a racist, and and he, and he talked to his daughter, who still lives in Pittsburgh today, and is very upset about right. what's become yeah, of uh, yeah. your father. Yeah. And um, I'm, I know people in the Pirates organization, uh, Sally O'Leary, who's been with Pirates forever. Uh, she helped me a great deal with the book I wrote, and um, she's. I mean, this is all she's living for now. Mm. She's in her late seventies, and she wants to set this right. Um, but it's like in Moneyball with what they did to poor Mark Howe. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. Holly, with the Jim Braddock and Cinderella. Baseball, baseball purists are the toughest critics. For this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's what he says. I shall never forget an incident in Boston at the very beginning of my major league career. So he puts it at so the very, very beginning. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, just along those lines, does, does he uh, write it all about uh, Hank Greenberg? Yes, he does. Yes. He praises Greenberg yeah. at one point. I don't remember exactly why, but he praises Greenberg. About the first incident at first base. Yeah. Did, uh, did you encounter the story of the barnstorming tours? I uh, did, but it only I think in a ramper sense. Yeah, I mean, because there was, you know, th this was before the Supreme Court decision, and, and even if there was a Supreme Court decision, you know, not before the fall, Jackie was was leading in a barnstorming team of black and white players, and the southern the southern people said you can't play mix, and I think Jackie they played without the white players. I think. Mm. That's yeah, I that's think. what I remember as well. Yeah. So, can I read you this one section that I referenced earlier? My own is that okay, Bob? Oh, please, please. My own childhood is one reason I try to win all the time. When I was one year old, my mother was left alone on a farm in Georgia with five small children. I've never seen my father. My mother took us in dirty Jim Crow coaches to Pasadena and raised us there. We lived in a house on Pepper Street on what money she was able to earn by working as a domestic. We never had much to eat, <gasps> except for day-old bread that we dunked in sugar and milk. Even now, Rachel has to remind me to eat green vegetables. I do so as an example to our family, but I never really developed a taste for them. We had meat on Sundays only when my mother was able to get extra work. I was the youngest in the family, and my sister, Willa May, who was two years older, older, took care of me when my mother was working. When she went to school, I went along and played alone in the sandbox in the school until she got out of class. The school authorities complained to my mother about this, for I was only three years old and they didn't want me on their hands. If I quit working to stay home to take care of him, I'll have to go on a relief, my mother told them. 
it'll be cheaper for the city if you just let them play in the sandbox. So I stayed in the sandbox. When I was old enough to go to school myself, I told my mother she could save food by not fixing a lunch for me. I was the best athlete in class. The other boys brought me sandwiches and dimes for the movies just so they could play on my team. So you might say I turned professional at an early age and I had to win from the start if I wanted to eat. Willa May, his sister, doesn't remember not having enough food to eat, by the way. So it's always good to approach these things critically. Who, who, were, who were the two uh, ghostwriters? I mean, Duckett was the last Duckett was the one. Who did uh, I never have? Right. right. Yeah, Al, Alfred Duckett was the one who wrote, ghosted uh, the New York Amsterdam news columns. And then uh, Bill Branch was the one who ghosted for the New York Post columns. So what date was these columns featured in that? Uh, so Post 59 to 60 and Amsterdam News 62 to 68, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think I remember everything. <laughs> it's a lot to remember. So I think what we're going to do is, if people have further questions, just because of the time factor, we're going to have to say farewell to our podcast audience. Uh to those of you not here who, who have not seen the book, fortunately that was beautiful. That I'm glad that Michael Doc got to read Jackie's uh, words. And the cliche is you can't judge a book by its cover. In this case, that's not that's not true. Mm-hmm. Here you can judge this book by its cover because it's really a beautiful cover and it's a beautiful book. And so thank you very much for putting this together and thank you for coming to the clubhouse. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.